Hello, and welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. That's usually art house or world cinema. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about sort of an obscure film. It's not that well known, but I really needed to talk about it. And it's Matthew Amalric's 2001 film, The Stade de Wimbledon. The English translation is The Wimbledon Stage. And so that's the film I'm going to be talking about today. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, my name is Caitlin. I am a writer, a dreamer, I'm a very sensitive person. I love literature, art, poetry, and in the last few years, since 2001, I've become really obsessed and entranced by cinema, especially art house cinema, and what I like to refer to as world cinema, you know, films from other countries outside of the United States or the English-speaking world. Cinema has completely just upended my life and changed my life, and it's something that I feel deeply connected to and that I feel really passionate about. And I usually watch about one film a day, usually, sometimes more if I'm really obsessed. And it's a comfort to me. It's it's life-saving for me. And so films are really personal in my life. They really, really are. And um, I created this podcast so that I could talk about films. Um, I live in a rural area in the South, and you might be able to tell by my accent. Um... <laughs> I do live in the south and it's in a rural area and I don't really, I mean there's no cinephile culture where I live and there's no art house theater where I live and um, so I don't really have access to that stuff. My, My entry has pretty much been the online world, you know. And so this podcast is just really an outlet for me to express myself. The title comes from an email that, the title of the podcast, Her Head in Films, It comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago. I wrote in that email, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so it is the perfect way to encapsulate how I feel about films, how I'm always thinking about them and engaging with them. And um, today's film in particular, Lestade de Wimbledon, has been like that. It has just been in my head. It's it's something that I've been thinking about. I was going to write a review of it. I had written some stuff on index cards and then I was like, uh, I'm not feeling this. And so I decided to instead do a podcast episode about it. This podcast does have a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast, which I would really appreciate if you would like to do that. You can find it at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, in case you're not familiar with the website. I have a lot of rewards and extras for you. One of the rewards is that you can get a shout-out in each episode. So I'd like to give my shout-out to Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, Lindsay, and Olivia. Thanks so much for being a patron of the podcast. I really do appreciate it so much. And I appreciate all of you who listen to the podcast. And I hope that you like it. I hope that you listen again. Um, I, I really do enjoy doing the podcast. And 
I enjoy just sharing my thoughts. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit ca- more casual. I just I hadn't planned on recording an episode. It's like Saturday night, you know, most people are out doing things and I'm just hanging out doing my podcast. I got some hot chocolate set up um <laughs> that I'm going to be drinking. It doesn't have anything special in it. Um <laughs> no alcohol. Um but I just this just might be a little bit more of a casual episode. So, um, I've just been really lonely lately. I've just felt really isolated and alone in my life. And I felt like really stressed. I've had just, you know, help things going on and just, I don't want to go into like a lot of detail about it, but it's just, I felt so overwhelmed and so alone and so, isolated and nobody to really talk to nobody to I don't know it's just sometimes I feel like the loneliness of my life you know that I don't have besides my mom I don't have anyone to really rely on Um, I don't live um, where I grew up I don't have any I just moved to another state in the last two years I moved to another state and so there's no family where I live I don't have any friends here and so I really think it um it sort of exacerbates my sense of loneliness you know I mean really the only contact I have with people who are like-minded or who are like me and share my passion for literature and things and you know cinema is online is through Twitter or other social media sites through this podcast um And so I think loneliness and isolation, I think they can be really difficult. And I think when they're chronic, when you go through that, basically your entire life where you feel very disconnected from people. And I talk a little bit about this in my recent episode about Carnival of Souls, um, the horror film from 1962. I really in that film saw it as a look at loneliness and separateness and disconnection from other people and the main character at one point has this quote where she says you know I'm separate from everybody else I don't belong in the world and that's that's something that's really haunted me sort of my entire life is that feeling of separateness and and loneliness and so I think I wanted to do this episode to just try to break break myself open a bit and and share things and and just talk and meander and muse and I just wanted to express myself you know what I mean and this film has really been in my heart and in my mind since I watched I watched it maybe a week ago and I watched it once and I was really fascinated by it and then I watched it again for a second time like within a few days and I never do that I rarely rarely watch a film twice within a short period of time but I had to watch Lestade de Wimbledon again it was just that important to me so um this really is the kind of film you that you don't know you need until you watch it and then you realize that that you needed a film like this um I had never heard of it before. Um, I just came across it randomly. I chose it randomly because it was Mathieu Amalric's 
uh, birthday, the day that I chose to watch it. I, I love him. I'm a big fan of Amalek. And, um, as an actor and as a director, although the only other film from him I've seen is The Blue Room, which is pretty good. Um, I think it's from like 2014 or 2013, somewhere around there. Um, but he is a director and he's also a really well-known actor, especially in France, I'm sure. And so I just wanted to watch something connected to him because it was his birthday. And, um... And I sort of love when I come across little gems like this, films that are sort of obscure and not known. Not that that's what I always watch, you know. Um, I'm not someone who sort of fetishizes the obscure. I think some people can kind of be like, well, if it's not obscure, then I'm not going to watch it. And they may reject or resist more commercial and mainstream films. And I'm not like that. I will watch anything. I'm pretty omnivorous as a cinephile. I watch, you know, romantic comedies like Under the Tuscan Sun, and then I watch more obscure films like Lestade de Wimbledon. I'm not particularly choosy or something. And I think each film that you watch can give you something different. That sometimes you crave that narrative um, and the catharsis and the fulfillment and satisfaction and just the sheer pleasure that can come with watching a mainstream commercial film. And then I think sometimes you're in the mood for something more um, erudite or something more intellectual, something more um, fragmented or, or um, non-traditional or, or unconventional. And so it's whatever you're in the mood for. Like just last night I was really restless. I was trying to watch something and I put on some Chantal Ackerman and I was like, uh, I'm not into this right now. Like sometimes I'm just not in the right space to appreciate a film, especially if it's an art house film, because I want to be at my best when I'm watching it. I want to be receptive. I want to be, um, alert, you know, and really get engaged with it. But then I was trying to watch something maybe more commercial, and I wasn't getting into that either. So I ended up just, I don't know, I ended up just listening to some piano music and reading. I'm reading this fabulous book right now called Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson, and it's just blowing my mind. It's just this gorgeous film, I mean gorgeous book, and there's actually a film adaptation of the book that I plan on watching once I finish the novel. So, um, so I love these obscure films and it feels like in this age of social media, while I think, I think cinephile culture is alive and well on the internet and it's a really great thing that there's so many film reviews and so many people are passionate about film. I think that's wonderful. I really do. I think things are so different from the way they used to be with streaming platforms and all of that. And I'm not knocking social media, but I think there can be a bit of a saturation where every day, you know, there's essays and think pieces and opinion pieces about all the films out there. And sometimes it's nice to just discover a film for yourself. You know, no one's telling you to watch it. No one's no one's telling you not to watch it, you know, um, and no one's telling you what to think about it or how to approach it. 
you're just sort of discovering it on your own and you're exploring it on your own and um that can be really nice sometimes to get away from the noise I think of social media and sometimes it's hard to even know what to watch there's so much out there right I mean that's become a big problem now is when you have so many options what do you watch and I think maybe more and more people who curate things people who do review people who do make recommendations have become even more important and maybe I'm a little bit part of that I mean I'm not anybody important in the film world I assure you my podcast is very small and <laughs> very obscure for the for the main part honestly but I, I imagine that some of you maybe listen to my podcast and maybe you go and seek out a film because of it or maybe you follow me on Twitter and maybe I do recommend films a really great film that just came to Netflix right now is Heal the Living um, which I did an episode on on the podcast and I really love that film and so I was recommending it to people and then recently I was also recommending to people the film Big Night which was directed by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott. It's about two brothers played by Tony Shalhoub and Stanley Tucci who come to America from Italy and it's the 1950s and they start an Italian restaurant and it's this fabulous perfect film and I love it to death and I've also done a podcast episode about it. So I do recommend films to people but you know I still think it's really great to explore for yourself and I understand people want recommendations and they want to know where to start and I totally get that I'm not criticizing that but sometimes it's nice to just come to a film on your own through your own exploration and that's what happened with me with Lestade de Wimbledon this film I think is in many ways a forgotten film an obscure film it's one that no one really talks about or puts on any list. I mean, I certainly haven't seen it or come across it. I mean, it's just sort of lives in the cinema ether, right? It's It exists, but it doesn't. Because in this day and age, what is a film if it isn't being watched all that much? And if no one's talking about it and, you know, no one's celebrating it. And so I am here with this podcast episode to celebrate this film and it's rare it's it's meandering and it's it's a literary film in many ways and so you're probably wondering what in the hell is this film about well it's directed by Mathieu Amaric it stars his then girlfriend or spouse um, Jeanne Balibar who is an actress and a singer and um, part of the reason why I was interested in the film is because even though Amalric and Balibar have divorced, they, um, they, and I think they had some children together as well. I think they divorced around 2003, so just a couple of years after this film came out. They recently teamed up for a, a film called Barbara, and it's coming out this year, I think. I think it was at Khan or Can, I guess it's pronounced Can. They teamed up for this biopic about Barbara, who was a French singer who I really love. And she has this sort of moody, dark piano music at times. I don't know much about Barbara, um, but I really want to see that biopic. So I knew about Bally Bar and I knew about Amalric. And so when I saw Lestade de Wimbledon, 
I got intrigued. I was like, oh, another film that they've done together. And Valley Bar has intrigued me a lot recently. I've watched a few films with her in them. Um, and so she's one of those actresses that I've only recently d discovered, only recently found. And she intrigues me. And I do think that she's a really great actress. And even when I didn't particularly like the films that she was in, she kept me watching them. And I think that is one of the hallmarks of a really great actress is that she keeps you watching. She keeps you looking at her and her performance, even if the film in which she is performing is mediocre or is not particularly interesting. Um, and I think that's a power that she does have as an actress. So Lestade de Wimbledon is based on a book, uh, a book called Lo Stadio de Wimbledon by Danielle del Giudice. It's an Italian book. It has not been translated into English, which drives me mad because if it had been translated into English, I certainly would have read it. Um, so now I'm like so obsessed with this film, with this book that I will probably never be able to read. Somebody needs to translate this book. Um, the film is about an unnamed young woman played by Jeanne Balibar who becomes obsessed with the life of a man named Bobby Volher. He is a man who was a writer but never wrote a book. She travels to Volher's hometown of Trieste, Italy. And she's really going on sort of a literary search for any information about his life and his writing that she can glean from the few friends of his who are still alive. Now, Volher is dead at this point. And I, I'm guessing that the film was was um, filmed maybe around 2000 or 1999 because it was released in 2001. So, um, so Volher is dead. His friends are probably in their 70s and 80s, I would say. Um, but she meets with them. And um, she meets with some women that knew Volher. She meets with some men that knew him. And um, through their anecdotes and their stories about Volher, she's trying to piece him together. But throughout this film, he remains a very mysterious, elusive, and unknowable person. And really, aren't we all? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this film is how it really withholds Volher from us. That we want to know more about this writer. He was obviously a great writer. He was an editor as well. He published a few brochures, one of the friends says. But he never published a book. And um, what she really wants to know is why he didn't write a book. Why he had all this talent, all this potential, but he never actually published anything beyond those few brochures or pamphlets. And it sounds like he was part of the Italian literary scene. Um, he certainly was friends with other writers. He was an editor and he helped other writers shape their own work. But he never produced his own book, his own, you know, I guess masterpiece or whatever. But the main question she has is why didn't he? Why didn't he write a book? And by the end of the film, that question remains unanswered. 
But the point is, is that the film never intended on answering the question. It's not concerned with answers. It's interested in the questions. The answers don't matter as much as the search for the answers matter. It's about the search. The film revels in the search. And it makes a case, I think, for the act of seeking, of seeking something. Ballybar's character is seeking Bobby Volher. She is seeking to know why he didn't write, why he didn't write a book. She never really finds out why he didn't write a book. But on the way to seeking out that answer, for searching for that answer, she lives and she meets people and she goes on train rides and she explores Trieste, Italy and maybe she learns some things about herself and so um, as I say it's making this case for seeking for the for the journey itself and I know that's so cliche like we've all heard that it's not the destination it's the journey and I am never someone to espouse cliches or platitudes to you ever. I hate stuff like that. I'm I'm like anti-cliche, um, really. And um, but that is what I love about this film is that it is about the journey that she takes. And even though her questions are never really answered, as I say, that is not the point. So, in many ways, this film withholds the satisfaction of catharsis or conclusion. Um, there are no great revelations. There are no epiphanies in this film. It just shows sort of the chaos of that blind, endless search for something. Maybe it's a search for meaning. Maybe it's a search for answers for a person, for whatever. But whatever you are searching for, what even if you don't find it, what can you find in the search itself? Um, and that was an aspect of the film that I think is why it has just stayed in my head. It is one of those films that it lingers in your consciousness, the mysteries of this film. And I, I have not seen a lot of Amalric's films. I've only seen The Blue Room, as I say. But I really don't know how he could have directed a finer film than this one. I mean, to me, this is it's just full of mystery and... I love how literary it is, you know, that she's searching for a writer and she's also searching, I think, more than anything, for the meaning of writing and creativity. That is the big um, question that I think this film raises for the audience and the viewer is, what is the meaning of writing and of creating? And and I'll go into it in a moment, but in, and in publishing, what is the relationship between writing and publishing? You know, Bobby Volher is dead. He never wrote a book. Some of his friends remember him, but overall his life is bathed in mystery. And only his silence lives. And Ballybar's character is really mining the depths of that silence. And she is seeking something within it. And she is demanding that it speak to her. And that it reveal its secrets. And that it's very connected to writing. And to her idea, I think, of writing. And of course, if you write, wouldn't you want to be published? And wouldn't you want to write a book? 
These are the sort of traditional things that we think about. You know, if Volher was such a great writer, why didn't he write more? Why didn't he write a book? And it's interesting because Volher's friends, they offer various answers to Ballybar's inquiries. Um, but she herself struggles to reconcile what these theories mean. And so I'll give you an example. An example. And this is an exchange that she has with one of Volher's friends. She says, how did he feel about not writing himself? And the friend says, they say that maybe he wasn't interested in being published. Maybe it's true. Maybe he just wrote for himself. Then he went on to something else without publishing it. We all expected something really good from him. Why he couldn't go farther, I don't know. And so the friend himself doesn't necessarily know why Volher uh, didn't write. And Ballybar's character says, he used to say first-timeness was the essence of things. He also said books can't be written anymore. I only write footnotes. And then she says, I can't manage to put those ideas together. And so his friends can't necessarily crack the mystery either you know he wrote things one of the friends says that he did write things he wrote pieces he wrote fragments things like that but they themselves don't even know why he didn't go farther with it um and i think she asks so he thought about a novel while he was here she travels somewhere and the friend says he thought and thought but his life was his novel and I thought that was an interesting thing to say, that his life was his novel. And I'm a writer. I call myself a writer. I haven't really been published. I I published some poems in a literary magazine when I was in college. I've written things on the internet. Like, I used to blog a lot more. Um, you know, I've submitted maybe a handful of times to places it's not something I think about. It's not something I pursue. Um, and so that was another reason why this film was so captivating to me, was that I felt like it was really destabilizing our ideas of what a writer is and what a writer does and why a person writes. Because people are obsessed with being published, right? Everybody wants to publish a book. People want to be published in literary magazines. They want to have their work out in the world. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm not saying anything against that at all. We have writing programs and MFA programs galore, right? Where people go in and spend a lot of money or go into a lot of debt to learn how to write in a certain way. Or they do it in order to get connections into the publishing world so that they can be part of the publishing world, whether as an editor or because they want their books published. And so I think we all accept and we all um, expect that um, that a writer wants to be published, that a writer wants their work out in the world. And I think when we have when we come across a writer who does not want that, who resists that, who they may be a really great writer and a really fine writer, but they don't want to be published. I think it challenges us and I think it and it challenges Balabar's character, doesn't it? I mean, 
she's wondering why doesn't why didn't Volher write a book that is the part of the whole point of what she is doing and what she is searching for is why she is challenged by it she is perplexed by it it baffles her to no end which is why she makes multiple trips to Trieste to try to to do this sort of literary investigation into why this man didn't publish his work why he did not give a book or more books to the world um and she talks to another friend who says he understood at the end he wouldn't even leave a trace and i thought that was interesting and i'll talk a bit more about that in a moment that idea of leaving something behind the trace that i think a lot of people want to leave behind um but i think it, it challenges us when we see a writer who doesn't want to be published because being published means that you're pushing your work into as the as published says into the public into the public square into the public realm we think that artists do things in order to share it with other people that is one concept of art right that you you want to share it with other people you want to affect people you want to connect to people people who write and then don't share it with other people I don't think it makes sense to us and I would I would raise the example of Emily Dickinson in this that here was a woman who wrote hundreds and hundreds of poems on envelopes on grocery lists on labels all kinds of things and she I, I can't I don't know the exact number of poems that were published in her lifetime but it was very few it was maybe a handful she did not seek it she did not want it because she 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 rarely submitted her work as far as I know I'm not an Emily Dickinson expert I I don't know everything there is to know about Emily Dickinson by any means but she certainly was not trying to place all these poems that she wrote and I'm sure a biographer or a great biography could give much more insight into why she did not pursue a great deal of publication for her work but I think she is a good example of someone who um, withheld her work from the public and didn't seem very interested in pursuing that and I think that for that reason she um, perplexes us and I think it's the, there is a mystery about her that here she was living in Amherst you know living in her house she was very reclusive for the most part writing her poems and she had no interest in publishing them now Volher is a bit different because from what I can tell in the film Balabar's character does not like discover some you know cache of unpublished works you know it's not like say the trunk of fragments by Fernando Pessoa right um, I mean Pessoa is sort of a, another writer who not much was published during his lifetime I think he I think he did try to get things published but maybe it didn't work out as much or I think of like a Franz Kafka you know not much of his work was published during his lifetime and he actually burned quite a bit of his work before his death um, 
that's maybe more of a case of somebody somebody being published a bit when they were alive but not necessarily getting the attention in life as they got after death as i say i don't know all the intricacies of their biographies but dickinson in particular i think is a good example of someone who that is part of the mystery of her is why she did not publish as much as the, as much as people maybe would have expected and so it it really raises the question is publication the point of writing as i said for many people it is a lot of people what's the point in writing this novel what's the point putting all these hours all these years into it if nobody is going to read it what's the point of writing these poems if nobody's going to read them um so personally i am really haunted by the idea of all the people throughout time throughout history who were never published who kept their work secret or burned it like kafka a little bit and it, it's like i see it as this archive of writing that we will never read this unread archive this sort of vanished literature of of silent dreamers these people that we will never read and i think a bit of like journals and diaries that that's a kind of writing that is not for public consumption and yet there are some famous diarists like anna easney anna easney right um i may not be pronouncing that right um but she is an example she was a diarist she, many of her daughter may sarton you know she wrote diaries and journals as well um i haven't read her work yet but i definitely want to um so i think about all the people who maybe wrote and scribbled in their diaries and their journals and may have really written some profound things some some amazing things that we'll never read and we'll never know because it's lost to time or people that did write books or did write stories and tried to publish them perhaps or maybe they never had the confidence to publish them and so their work is just lost and we'll never read it i mean this is not literature but i think of something like vivian meyer uh, who was a photographer a street photographer but she never tried to place her photography she kept a lot of she kept the negatives and she um what is the word she didn't develop most of her pictures most of them were just they were left as negatives in a storage uh, a storage place and she could no longer pay for the storage and so they were sold at an auction the contents of the storage um, the storage locker I guess or whatever and she lived as a nanny in Chicago for much of her life and she never I mean she didn't try to get her pictures into museums or to have an exhibit of her photography she did not pursue life as like a professional photographer it held no interest for her and there's actually like a recent biography about her that i that i want to read because vivian meyer fascinates me because she was a little bit like emily dickinson but with photography in that she created art but she did not seek to put it into the public sphere it there was something in the act of the photography something in the act of taking the photo that did more for her 
then developing it or exhibiting it or sharing it with other people. Maybe for some people, that's just not what interests them. They're not interested maybe in the criticism that comes with it or the exposure that comes with it. Maybe they don't want to play the game. I mean, in many ways, you are having to play a game to get published. You are having to play by certain rules and know certain people and have certain connections to get your work out there and to get it seen and to get it appreciated. You know, there's so many people who write like on blogs or who write on Twitter and they are amazing writers. I have a really close friend and um, I'm not going to say her name because you probably wouldn't want me to, but um, she's actually the person that I wrote that email to. Uh, saying that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films, and I've known her for several years now, and we met through Tumblr, and we met online, and I think she is a tremendous, brilliant writer, but she does not seek out being published, and she she just shares her words on Twitter and places like that, and um, she's a sensitive, beautiful soul, and she is just brilliant you know she's such a great writer she puts things into words in such a beautiful way and um and I love that about her and I love her writing and I'll tell you she has written tweets that I think are more profound than some of the books that I have read than some of the stories that I have read by supposed important contemporary literary writers you know or the young up-and-coming writers um, so there are people who are maybe not pursuing publication, but who are really talented and really great writers, and they each have their own reason for not wanting to be published or not submitting their work. I myself, I'm not saying I'm a great writer or anything, but I consider myself a writer and I, I like writing, but I write in a really therapeutic way. I write because I have to write and I write by hand I write in my journal um, I haven't been doing it as much lately but the words for me are physical and it's I almost feel like I'm in a trance sometimes when I'm writing I sound ridiculous even saying this I know but um it's like physical for me it's it's like grounds me in my body almost and I think when you write by hand, I think it's a very different experience than when you're typing. I think when you when your hand forms the words, it's almost closer to art or sculpture or painting in that it feels like the words are this material, this physical, tangible material that you're that you're making contact with and that you're you're sculpting, right? And um I write for catharsis, I write for therapy, I write because I have to survive, I have to live, I write because I don't know how else to express myself and I don't know how else to to survive, you know, I write a lot about pain and I write about loss and I write about grief and I write about these very dark painful things that live inside of me 
the things that haunt me, the things that I can't articulate, unspeakable things. I would say that my style or the way I think of writing or the kind of writing I would want to do is closer to somebody like Clarice Lispector and her work. I would never compare myself to her ever. But the way that she was trying to speak the unspeakable is what I'm trying to do when I'm writing. Sometimes I'll put music on and I'll just I'll just write whatever is what I feel like inside of me. It's like I'm trying to articulate things that I can't put into words, you know, that live outside of language. And so I actually struggle with writing for that reason. It's like I wouldn't say I necessarily love writing or enjoy writing. It's more of like I need an outlet and I need a way to express these things. And so this is what I've chosen. This is the medium I've chosen. So I'm not someone who's writing short stories and novels, right? I'm writing things that are very personal, that are very interior, that are inexpressible and unspeakable. And so I'm writing in a way that I don't think there is a space for it. Um, I don't think anybody would want to read what I write because it's different and it's it's strange and it's raw and it's unpolished and yeah I mean a few years ago I tried to get a writing scholarship to like a prestigious school and and I tried to fit myself into what I thought that they wanted I tried to write these short stories that were really not that good and um and I had inquired to them, you know, could I send in a certain kind of writing, which is more true to myself. And they said that they wanted, quote, polished work, like more polished work. And so I tried to do that. And of course, I failed. You know, I didn't get the writing scholarship. And it actually scarred me, I think. It made me feel like I wasn't a writer. It made me feel... um rejected obviously because I was I really wanted that writing scholarship because I thought that it would be an affirmation of who I was of the identity that I had created for myself at 18 years old 18 um yeah I was 18 that's crazy 18 or 19 and um I just wanted an affirmation of it you know what I mean? And and it didn't come. And, you know, it's like when you try and you try and it doesn't happen. And sometimes the cost of it is too great. I think for some people, they take rejection and they can deal with it. And it's not a big deal. And they just move on to the next thing. And they have that confidence in themselves. And I admire that. And I think there's a great bravery and courage that you need to try to get yourself published, to go through the things that you have to go through you know to get a story published somewhere and um, I just think I'm not made of maybe tough enough stuff to take it because my work and my writing is so personal to me and it's so particular to my life and my experience and so I'm really in awe of people who are able to do it and who get rejected a lot because that always comes with it right and I really admire them that they're able to do it, you know. I just don't think that's my path. And I think that 
every time I have been published in something, like when I was published in the literary magazine in college, I don't know, it just made my stomach turn. Like I, I didn't even like, I didn't even, I just like felt a lot of shame about it. Like, oh my God, my terrible poetry is out in the world. And I just felt kind of ashamed of it forever. And I still do. <laughs> and, um, I can't say that it like made me feel good to be published. So I, I think that's why I don't pursue it. It's because it, it doesn't make me feel any better. It doesn't make me feel like a writer. It doesn't make me feel, I don't know if I'll ever feel good enough. I don't know if I'll ever feel talented or anything like that, you know? Um, and maybe it was something similar for Volher, you know, in this story that maybe the cost was too great. You know, maybe it was just not what he was interested in. And I think part of what Ballybar's character, um, why she's going on this literary search, um, is that she herself seems really fascinated by writers, you know, and I'll get into that in a moment. But I wanted to go back to that idea of leaving a trace. And I think that is why some people want to be published. They don't just want to, you know, share their work with other people or have an impact or connect. I think that's part of it, of course. But I think there's also this desire to leave something behind, to leave a trace of your life, to leave a residue, you know, to say that you were here and to leave some kind of legacy and, and, and seek out immortality, I guess you could say. Recently, I watched this really great documentary by Marcy Beglider about the artist Ava Hess. Eva Hess, sorry. And it's called Eva Hess. That's the title of it. And that documentary really obsessed me for days, just like Lestade de Wimbledon obsessed me. I thought a lot about Hess and her art, and I read about it, and I looked at it, and um, I'm not an expert on art, but I love art, and I love looking at it. I wouldn't say post-minimalism is my strength in any way, and I wouldn't say that I totally understand minimalist art or post-minimalist art, but there's something about Hess's work that I find fascinating, and that I see so many possibilities in her work, and I think that she really expanded the possibilities of what art could be. But one of the more unsettling and unusual aspects of Hess's work is its transience. She used very fragile materials that degraded over time. So while other artists were really seeking immortality, Hess embraced the ephemeral. And, you know, she died of a brain tumor at the age of 34. So she was someone who knew that nothing is permanent. And so I think it's really interesting how her art in many ways mirrored that. And she did this interview with Cindy Nemser. And um, I read it. It's called Art Talk Conversations with 12 Women Artists. And Hess said, quote, life doesn't last. Art doesn't last. It doesn't matter, unquote. And that quote is actually in the documentary about her. And it's just this fascinating idea to me because it's so, I think, antithetical to a lot of people's ideas about art. We do everything we can 
to preserve art. You know, we are trying to preserve Da Vinci and Van Gogh and Picasso and all of that stuff. We desperately want it to be preserved so that generations can see it. And that work has endured for centuries. And here is Eva Hesse's art. Some of it just decays and decomposes, decomposed within like 15 years of her creating it. Things like rubber and latex and that she used. Um, things that were very fragile, fragile materials, uh, transient materials that don't last long and were, you know, degrading over time. And so I, I thought maybe Volher felt the same way, you know, that even a book wouldn't make him immortal, that it really didn't matter either way. And so I think people write and I think people create art for different reasons. That yes, for some people it's to be published. It's to have that affirmation from an audience or from other people. Um to support themselves financially with their writing. That's very important. I think of Sylvia Plath. Um, what really gets lost in her biography and her story is how diligent she was and how audacious I think she was um, in her desire to support herself on her writing, support herself from her writing. She um, relentlessly uh, submitted her work to magazines and publications. She did the same thing for her husband, Ted Hughes. She submitted his um, manuscripts to poetry contests. And she did the same for her own work. You know, she submitted short stories. She submitted poems. She wanted to be published because she wanted to be a professional writer. And she wanted to make a living off of it. And she wanted to support herself. And she wanted to live a literary life, you know, and that's what she wanted. And she was diligent about it and she was ferocious about it. And um, people don't talk about that a lot of how diligent she was about submitting her work, how much she believed in her work and in her writing, you know, the scholarships she won and how academically rigorous she was and, and, how much she achieved. I mean, she died when she was 30, but think about everything she achieved. The colleges she went through, went to, the work she had published, you know, the books she had published. So that's an amazing thing about Plath, I think. That was part of what she wanted. Um, she wanted to be published, and that was important to her, you know. But there are other people, I think, who are not as interested in being published. And I think that is just as valid. And I think it's also very interesting to think about those writers. Think about all the writers now who, you know, maybe they're not even putting their stuff online or on the internet, you know. Or how maybe the internet allows people to share their writing who maybe in the past would not have been allowed to. Who wouldn't have been in literary magazines or who wouldn't have had their manuscripts accepted for publication. And so they're doing it online. You know, like some of the blogs and stuff like that. And some people's blogs have turned into books, or some people's blogs have really um, have really become popular, you know, and important to people. And people have really connected to what they have to write.
And so that brings me back to what I was going to say that Ballybar's character is interested in writers and I think she's interested in writing itself. Um, she says at one point, and this is really fascinating, sometimes, quote, sometimes I'm obsessed by what others can see for I see nothing when walking and looking around, unquote. And that's from the film. And so she seems interested in Volher and writers in general because of the way they see the world, how they see what she cannot see. And it made me, it made me think, I mean, this, this film made me think a lot about writing, you know, and, um, and it made me think how non-writers or people who don't write, it's like, it's almost like they suffer from a kind of blindness and that writers give them access to vision and to sight that they don't have in everyday life. You know, I think some of the best writing makes us reappraise the ordinary. It really forces us to see anew the things we've always looked at, but that we've never truly seen, you know. And that happens like when I'm reading right now Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. You know, there are just these gorgeous passages and there are these things that she does with language that I've had passages in this book where I just want to stop and cry. And I can't exactly articulate why they made me want to cry. But she said something in such a way that it absolutely moved me. And it touched me somewhere deep inside, you know. And I just, I've had moments where I've wanted to cry reading the book. And there's the way that she describes the natural world or she describes certain experiences. I don't have the book in front of me to do quotes or anything, but that makes you look at those particular things differently in your ordinary life. And so I do think some of the best books, that's what they do. They make us reappraise the ordinary. They make us see, they give us access to, to a vision, to a kind of sight that we do not have unless we are reading a book in our everyday lives we do not see those things there's a, a sort of blindness or maybe we have blinders on and we can't really see the world the way it is or we can't see what's underneath the surface of the world or under the surface of life but when we read these books they they reveal those depths to us and those things that we could not see. And there's this great scene where Ballybar's character compares writing to sinking. And I loved that. She said, I felt like making a comparison between writing and sinking. I regard both as having much in common. And this metaphor, sorry, I need to take a sip. This metaphor has just stayed with me and it's captured me because I had never thought of it that way before that writing is similar to sinking, but it is in many ways it is. And that is why I write. I write for the experience of writing. I don't really care as much about the finished product. And that was something 
that I loved about Eva Hess too is that Eva was interested in the process of creating art and she wanted to bring the personal back into art I think and she wasn't considered a process artist I think that's sort of a different genre of art but process art interests me because as it says it's about the process of making the art I don't know a lot about it I need to look more into it because I would say I wonder if there is a process writing where it's more about and I guess you would call it therapeutic writing or bibliotherapy or not bibliotherapy bibliotherapy is where you're reading for therapeutic reasons but some kind of therapy writing right where the act of writing the act of creating the words putting the words together that process and that experience for me it does more for me than the actual product that comes from it you know if that makes sense that after I like the therapy of writing you know the act of writing of getting these things out of me although they're never really out they're always still inside of me living inside of me but the process of of articulating them does more for me than what actually ends up on the page and sometimes I'll look at what's been written and I don't always like it and I don't really want to do anything with it I've always hated editing always always I'm very much a person who the writing is it's comes from a gut level it's automatic in a way there's this instinctual thing about it and I feel it and if I don't feel it then I don't know what to do with it like I, I don't know how to edit it because it came from the particular moment in which it was written that that was carrying all of these emotions and feelings and associations and it it's born from that particular moment and that particular experience of writing it and so when it's divorced or separated from that moment of writing it in the context of the of of how it was written where it was written I don't know what to do with it then you know I don't know how to edit it I don't know what it is anymore because for me writing is always physical and writing is always of the body and it's always connected to how I feel and what I'm trying to articulate in that particular moment but it is a kind of sinking you know you're sinking into yourself you're sinking where the words exist that is what you're doing you're sinking into these depths into this place where you are finding the words or you're trying to find the words and so I do think that the act of writing is the act of sinking and it's also the act of searching just as this film illuminates Ballybar's character and her search um, for Bobby Volher you know and I'd like to linger a moment on the search itself and what that entails and really this is a film about a physical search too 
because Ballet Bar's character is not from Trieste, Italy. She's obviously from France. She is French. And so she travels by train about three different times to Trieste. And then in the final few scenes, she goes to London, which is where Lestade de Wimbledon, the title comes from, the Wimbledon stage. She goes to Wimbledon. I don't know why. I, I would say that for me, the title is a bit mysterious. I'm not totally sure what it is referring to. Um, so to me, it's still sort of a mystery. And there's not much written online about this film. So there's not much research I can do to like double check. or And I can't read the book so because it's in Italian and it hasn't been translated. So I can only go off what I'm seeing in the film. Um, but this is about a physical journey and the places that Ballybar's character travels. And, um, so it's this very kinetic sort of peripatetic film. And, um, and it's as much about Volher, I think, as it is about Trieste and about the people of Trieste. And it's interesting because at the end of the film, we learn that Right, love you. That was just my mom saying good night. <laughs> I was like, I'm doing this at night. Um, back to what I was saying. Um, so as I was, I had talked about writing for a moment, and it's and we learned that Ballet Bar's character is actually writing herself which sort of surprised me because she seemed really interested in writers but she seemed like someone who maybe didn't write herself you know that she was more interested in writers but she is writing perhaps a fictional account of Volher's life with a lot of the gaps and missing pieces filled in by her imagination and as I said this is really a film about Trieste and about wandering it's uh, what is that word? Flaneur? Flaneur? I don't know if I'm saying it right. The per a flaneur is like someone who... And don't you just love me trying to do my French inflections? I'm terrible. I know. Um, I wish I was French in many ways. Or I wish I was like... Just some other... I don't know. Nationality sometimes. Um, I feel like I should have been European or something like that. I don't know. But, um, you know, this person that travels and walks the streets and explores a city. And it's interesting because I live in a rural area. I live in the country where there's trees and grass and meadows and forests. And I'm very connected to that in many ways. And I've never actually been to a city or experienced a city. Um, and so these films sort of fascinate me, the the wandering around the streets of a city. And her voiceover, Ballet Bar's voiceover, runs throughout the film. And she'll often describe her experiences in Trieste, how she felt, who she met, her musings. We really travel with her as she searches for Volher. And she's searching for him in, in the library archives of Trieste. And also she's mining the depths of the minds of his living friend. She's searching and rummaging through their minds, just as she's sort of rummaging through these archives 
um, again, it's that act of searching that gives the film so much power. It's this, it also has this meandering quality where it's just sort of about her just traveling around and that's part of, I think, the charm of it is that it reminds us of this sort of pre-digital, pre-social media world where things were so different, right? Things were much more physical. We were not inundated with the internet and and um, I think the disembodiment that comes with it. This film is filled with phone booths and cafes and train rides and bookstores and books. Um, much of her journey really has nothing to do with Volher. As I say, it is about her wandering around, her going through the archives, her going to libraries, her talking to Volher's friends, um, but also not talking to them specifically. It's also about these random conversations that she has with various people. At the beginning of the film, she's on a train to Trieste, and she's just talking to this British guy, and they're just talking about bridges. The train, um, the train breaks down, and they have to walk a ways, and they're just, you know, they're just talking about stuff. She's on another train and she talks to a woman about Victor Hugo. Um, and then she's at a cafe where she talks to a woman about vegetables. Um, she goes on vacation. I think she's still in Italy. And so she's sort of floating on the water and it's, it has that quality to it where it just sort of, um, you're just sort of floating around with her on this search, talking to these people, experiencing Trieste or experiencing London when she goes to London to talk to another one of Volher's close friends who knew him, uh, a woman who lives in London. And so it's really a film about cities and um, Rebecca Solnit has this great quote in her book Wanderlust, A History of Walking, and she writes, A city is a language, a repository of possibilities. And I sort of thought of that when I was watching this, that Trieste, Italy, is becomes this place of possibilities. But I think it also becomes this place of ghosts, or of one particular ghost, and that is Bobby Volher. And so... Maybe she thinks that if she is seeing what Volher saw on the streets of Trieste and maybe knowing where he lived and walking the roads he walked can bring her closer to his elusive spirit because he's always so elusive and he's always so mysterious. How, however, no matter where she goes or who she talks to, he is still out of reach. He remains out of reach. And um, that is the mystery of this film. She never really finds out. She never really um, understands why he didn't write more. Why he didn't write his book. Um, 
and she gets really frustrated with that when she's in London at the end of the film she has this moment she's at this bed and breakfast um, this like this little cottage I guess and she's just sitting in bed and she just screams <laughs> it's actually kind of funny it's just like this this sudden screaming that she does and um and then she has this scene and it's before that where she's on a train and she's then the voiceover says quote I came here to find out why a writer didn't write now everything's swelling unquote she feels this destabilization take her over because I think that she's searching for Volher she's searching for answers about Volher and yet she's not coming any closer to them and she cannot answer the questions that she has and she cannot make sense of him or she can't he he remains out of her reach he remains mysterious and unknowable his motives remain mysterious um all she has are these anecdotes about him these fragments these stories um she just has these bits and pieces of his life and I guess in the end for a lot of people that's all that remains of a life you know is these bits and pieces and refracted through the lens of the people that knew that person they didn't really know that person they only knew their version of him or her or their version of them they they didn't know everything about them and so on some level all of us are unknowable all of us remain a mystery maybe even to ourselves but certainly to the people who knew us or thought that they knew us um, we are not knowable you know and Bobby Volher I think in his story is a reminder of that that people are at their core mysterious and unknowable and especially when you're talking about a writer or somebody who's creative you know and somebody who did not leave behind a text for you to look at or personal writings that would maybe give you insight into their minds or into their um into what they were thinking and feeling and wanted to do and so that is Volher in many ways he is this mysterious elusive character who haunts the film and has this sort of spectral ghostly presence in this sort of ghostly city of Trieste too and um and she searches for him and she finds a little bit of him but maybe not as much as she wanted or as much as she expected or longed for and um so it's just this sorry um it's just this fascinating film like I've watched it twice I think I would definitely watch it again I, I loved entering that sort of on the tip of the millennium you know of 2000 um, you know before everything just went so wrong especially here in the United States we had 2001 you know 9-11 and then the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and with the 21st century it just feels like everything has just fallen apart and 
so to see a film that was probably filmed around 2000 I would think or maybe early 2001 it's like this other world that used to exist like I said the phone booths and the cafes and the bookstores and this sort of physical tangible world and I like that I like her wandering I like her train rides I've always been in, intrigued by trains you know again I don't live in a city so I don't go on trains um, but they they always hold this romance for me for some reason but um so I love that I love that it's just about this woman traveling wandering searching and I love that there are no answers, that there is no destination, that there is no conclusion, that there is no catharsis, that the ending is open-ended, that the ending is um, am ambiguous, yeah, that it withholds answers, that it withholds any kind of big revelations or epiphanies. And I think the, that's why the mystery of the film lingers. And I think that's why it lives on in your consciousness. And, and like I say, those questions that it raises about the meaning of writing, the meaning of creativity of what, why write if you are not going to be published, you know, and what do we do with writers who are not interested in that and maybe write for a different reason? what do we make of that how does that challenge us how does that go against convention you know and how does it resist our expectations and could that be an interesting way to look at art or to look at writing and to think about you know that maybe publication is not the be-all end-all and that maybe some people get more from the act of writing or the experience of writing than from publishing it or trying to get it published or putting it out into the public sphere. So there's so much to think about and to explore with this film and there's no spoilers really. It's it's a journey without a destination. It's a narrative without a conclusion. It's it is ongoing and it lives with you and lives inside you and and um so it's it's just this really great film and i don't think i have anything more to say about it <laughs> i think i've said everything and i just love it so much and that's why i wanted to talk about it yeah i'll stop here thanks so much for listening bye for now and um, and until next episode keep watching great films bye